El Cuerpo de Cuentos, stories from an American in the Dominican Republic. Should we talk about education? Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. So, my name is Dave, and I am Peace Corps volunteer in the province of Elias Piña, and I live in a small rural village that's on the outside, or like kind of in the northern, mid northern part of the island, and I'm an education volunteer. So before you became a Peace Corps education volunteer, you also were an education volunteer with AmeriCorps and Teach for America, right? Yeah, so when I was in college at um, University of Pittsburgh, I did um, a regional AmeriCorps program called Keys Service Corps, which is Knowledge to Empower Youth to Success. And so I was a youth mentor working in a nonprofit computer center providing tech literacy um, to youth and senior citizens, actually. And then after college, I joined um, Teach for America, the 2013 Miami-Dade Corps. And so I was in uh, Miami and, Flor- and Florida, and I worked as a middle school language arts teacher teaching 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Um, and I did that for two years with Teach for America, and then most of the third year up until I left for Peace Corps. Um, which was like outside of the Teach for America realm, but I was still a public school teacher there. Dave came to the Dominican Republic with a lot more teaching experience than most people have when they become Peace Corps volunteers, in large part because of his time with Teach for America. I asked him how that experience compares to the Peace Corps. So as a... Teach for America volunteer, or Teach for America Corps member is actually what you're called, because you're not a volunteer, you're actually a full-time public school teacher. So the way Teach for America works is you apply to their organization, they take care of your training, and they help you with your certification, and then you get hired by the school district. And so I was a full-time public school teacher for Miami-Dade County Public Schools, and I was earning a public school teacher's salary as a part of the union, and I got all their benefits as well. And so even, let's say, if I left Teach for America, unlike in Peace Corps, I would still be able to have my job as a teacher because they're separate entities. Teach for America kind of takes care of your training and it has on- ongoing training and mentorship throughout the two years. So you're a full-time teacher. You're in charge of a full classroom by yourself. You have to do the state testing, all of that. Um, as Peace Corps volunteers, we are volunteers. And so we're more in a capacity building role and in a support role. And our employer is Peace Corps, and that's who we report to, that's who our manager structure is, our managers are all Peace Corps, and we work as a support to the school, but ultimately we don't answer to the school. Um, and like our stipends are paid through the United States government. So there's a big difference there. Um, I would say that like there's a big difference in culture between the two organizations as well. I think that Peace Corps tends to attract people from not necessarily more diverse backgrounds in the sense of um, ethnicity and faith and things like that, but as far as career paths and professional paths, I think that I've met many poor people from much different walks of life and much different uh, professional backgrounds. Whereas in Teach for America, the tendency is to be more recent college graduates. And while that's true with Peace Corps, uh, I think it's a bit more true with Teach for America. And it also tends to be uh, a personality type that's much more type A 
very strict professional um just for example like we were expected to wear suits throughout our entire training in like 100 degree oklahoma weather when we did our institute training for teach for america because that's the image that teach for america puts out whereas peace corps it's like you could wear your chacos and like you know you got like the, the more hippie feel not to say that they're not professionals but i would say it's a more relaxed atmosphere in general um with peace corps so you go through your certification process through Teach for America. You didn't have to study education in college, right? You became a teacher through their programming. Okay, depends on the state and the region. So every time, every state and region has different requirements. So because you're working for the school district, you have to fulfill the requirements that that state has. So almost every state in today's day and age has what would be called an emergency certification project process, which would be something along the lines of um, a three-year temporary professional certificate. And so in Florida, what you can do is you take a general knowledge test and you take the subject area test. So I had to take the general knowledge test and I took the English language arts professional teacher's test. And with that, I got a certificate for three years. I chose to pursue my professional certificate while I was teaching. And that entailed going to grad school classes, not getting a full degree, but taking certain coursework. Um, and the course, the training I did with Teach for America helped me with that because it counted towards some of the credits for my accreditation process. Um, but yeah, so it really depends. So for example, in New York, you have to be enrolled in a full-time master's program, master of education. Um, so it goes state by state, but it's not necessarily Teach for America that's giving you a certification, but they facilitate the process of getting your emergency certificate. volunteer for over a year and a half. Can you go ahead and just describe to me generally what your school looks like? Okay, so like I said, I'm in a rural community, so um, in at least being which is now the second poorest province, so that's the reality of the, the political atmosphere. Um, so you can imagine there's it's an under-resourced school, is what you'd call it. Um, so it's uh, right now we're on two tandas, or two school days, uh, so there's a morning block and an afternoon block. Um, in the morning block, we have our high school students, our middle school and high school is combined, and they consider that secondary education. And that would be from sixth grade until 12th grade, and then along with preschool. And so that's the morning block. And in the afternoon, we have first grade to sixth grade. Um, so they are four hour blocks with a two hour lunch for the teachers in between. So they go from eight in the morning to 12, um, two hours for lunch for the teachers and then from two in the afternoon to five, theoretically. We have at the school, for the primary school, there's 160 students approximately. We are not anything, we don't have multi-grades, so we don't have two grades in one classroom. Every classroom has its own classroom instructor. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a under-resourced school, so we don't have, we have a printer, but it's not something that you'd see in like a modern office. It's something that like you'd get, like one of those free printers you'd get when you buy a computer. So it's not really up to like, making industrial copies of like tests and things like that. Uh, so most of the teachers are working on chalk and chalkboard for most of their assignments there and the kids are working out of their notebooks. Um, and so there's not a lot of like resources as far as handouts. We also don't really have many textbooks, especially for the secondary education, uh, actually primary and secondary, but I feel secondary, it's, it's more important to have those textbooks and 
Um, normally what they have is each teacher will have like one textbook that they would be able to use to um, give the, the rest of the class by writing it on the chalkboard. I want to talk a little bit about the physical infrastructure of it. Okay. Um, I'm also in Elias Pena, and in my experience, I've seen a number of schools, uh, even throughout this very poor province, and in my experience, they seem to be pretty well built in terms of, sometimes sometimes they're definitely not large enough for the number of students that they are, okay. but they're all concrete buildings. Um, frequently, they don't have light, or they might not have water for the bathrooms, these okay, kinds of yeah. things, but these aren't buildings that are half fallen apart or ramshackle. Sure. Sure, it's not what you would maybe expect when you think of a developing nation. Sometimes you think dirt floors and stuff. Uh, I mean, the facilities at my school currently are not great. Um, they're definitely in need of repairs, but they don't, like some of the roofs are leaky. The bathrooms are not in good condition, but they have bathrooms. They have concrete floors. Um, we tend to have enough water at the school, although water is a problem with the community, but at the school they have enough water. Um, Does the school have electricity all the time? No. So we, when when there's electricity in the community, the school has electricity. We also have solar panels, but the uh, inverter is damaged. Um, and so we, we have enough, the structure is fine, I mean, at the end of the day, but we also have a new school that was built, um, and that has been in process for three years. Um, and that school is state-of-the-art for the Dominican Republic. So that has all of the proper offices, proper library space, um, you know, a fully functioning court, basketball court that is in a good state of repair because the court at the old school is not in state of repair. And so the plan is to divide the two centers and that would be when we go to full day school. Um, however, there has been like a contractual problem um, as far as getting the money for the land paid by the Ministry of Education. And so for three years, it's been just standing vacant, this new school. And our students have been on two block a day. Um, and how much longer do you think it's going to be vacant like that? Um, I mean, I don't know. The, the idea now is it's really, really close to being done. And theoretically, we were supposed to enter August 21st. But that didn't happen. So they're saying October we should be in there, hopefully. But again, this is something that's been said every year sure. so it's you it's one of those things you believe it when you see it so you said that you have about 160 primary school students is that right yes how many teachers do you have and what's the support staff of the school like we have 12 teachers um, the support staff is but understand why do we have 12 teachers because we were supposed to be on two centers so all these teachers were sent to the school with the idea that they would almost immediately be split between the two centers so they're not split so we have 12 teachers which is a surplus in most schools and so that's a good thing but we do not have a uh, librarian we have a secretary we have a coordinator um, and we have a director and then we have the staff who are the the cleaning staff and the security guard staff physical infrastructure and resources influence what happens in a school but they aren't everything the people that work there are responsible for how the school really functions, regardless of what they have or don't have. People dictate and transmit attitudes towards learning, and people decide what happens in a classroom. So I asked Dave about teacher culture in the Dominican Republic and how it compares to that in the U.S. You know, it's another point of comparison, and it's something that I take a little bit of pleasure in in, in the Dominican Republic. It's something I use. That's a little bit of uh, 
leverage in some ways because I was a teacher. So I can always just like pull that card on my teachers. And so when they're being negligent to their duties and not wanting to do something or complaining about their salaries or things like that, um, I could just pull that up. Like, well, in America, like it's a lot worse actually. I would say that teachers are treated much better in the Dominican Republic. They're paid, relatively speaking, they're paid much more than we are. So like an example, a teacher here makes around 35,000 pesos a month. Um, and for example, in Las Matas, the town I mentioned earlier, um, they pay rent at around 5,000 pesos a month. So that's like 7% of their income. Okay, as a teacher in Miami, I made $3,000 a month and my rent was around $1,000 a month. That's 33% of my income. And so just right there, you start to see that like your take-home pay in the Dominican Republic as a teacher is much higher. And then when you compare it to the rest of the professions, you're making as much as doctors and lawyers here. There's doctors and lawyers who are stopping doing what they're doing and becoming teachers because it pays better and it's less demanding work hours. Without a doubt, teachers are the best paid people in my community. Mm -hmm. And depending on seniority and whatnot, I think they make, yeah, between about 30 and 40. Mm -hmm. um, I talked about this on another podcast about money. We, as Peace Corps volunteers here, make uh, 14 and a half thousand mm -hmm. pesos, which works out to be about 330 US dollars or something like that mm -hmm. a month. Um, yeah, median income across this country uh, is about 8,000 pesos mm -hmm. a month. And I'd say the majority of people in my town make 2,000 pesos or less, literally. And it's, it's agricultural-based, too. Mm -hmm. So usually they have zero income for most months. They exist on the equivalent of food stamps, basically, and mm -hmm. what they happen to grow. And then whenever there is a harvest of uh, the major cash crops that we grow in our area, then they might have uh, a couple maybe 20 some odd thousand pesos for a month or whatever and mm -hmm. that takes them through however long a year mm -hmm. maybe yeah so teachers in that respect absolutely do have it good and i think they don't understand that the culture of teaching in the u.s that it's a deeply underpaid profession yeah and something that i really admire about teachers in the u.s is that there's a real culture of vol volunteerism mm -hmm. you come in early do your lessons plans you stay late you work with clubs you're pretty much always working as a teacher in the u.s yeah most definitely and that's so that's a big difference so and like i don't you know i don't know it's like, it's, it's hard to say better or worse but like in the dominican public you would not see teachers lesson planning before school or at least in my school I have not seen a teacher lesson planning before school. I have yeah. not seen a teacher lesson planning after school. I have not seen a teacher spend money on their classroom. In the, for example, in Miami, I spent, I think my first year, $1,200 on my classroom. And that was my first investment. And then I wrote grants for up to $3,500 to buy books and things. And wow. so I don't see teachers writing grants. I don't see teachers, and you know, it's, it's just the culture that's been created here. So I think that it's, it's not, laziness per se it's just a culture that like they're they don't they feel that their day ends at 5 p.m and then they shouldn't be expected to work more which maybe that's better because maybe teachers in the united states are just being exploited maybe it's volunteerism which is like a nice concept but maybe it's like hey teachers in america should be paid more but that's another interesting thing i picked up here is like i'm not i used to always say oh we need to pay teachers more we need to pay teachers more because that will attract better teachers. But what I've seen here is we pay teachers more, or they pay teachers much more, and they attract everybody and their and their and their brother because like they all just want the money, and they're not necessarily in it because they want to educate youth. And so I think that could be problematic. And so it's actually made me refine that belief a little bit. And maybe it's not the answer is pay more. 
Yeah, I agree with you. Um, well, while I just said I really admire the culture of teachers in the U.S. and this sort of, like, I call it volunteerism, I, at the same time, I, I do think that they're exploited, mm-hmm. and I do think that they shouldn't work as much off the clock, but I think that there's some parts, elements of the culture here that could be borrowed from that. They don't need to be working after 5 p.m. to 9, 10 p.m., like some no. teachers I know in the U.S. are coming mm-hmm. in at 5 a.m. when classes start at 7 or 8, this kind of thing. But seriously, an hour here or there to do a little bit of advanced preparation, mm-hmm. uh, once a week or a few days a week or to be running an after-school club these kinds of things I think I think could be really helpful here most definitely I, and I think like it's interesting I, they have what would be considered in the states you'd call it like common planning or like you have your planning block in in the Dominican schools and it just doesn't function and this also has to do with like we don't have like they're doing it under a tree outside so it's like yeah it's kind of hard to lesson plan when you're under a tree outside uh, and certain teachers do take it seriously, and you have to give them credit. But a lot of teachers just don't take it seriously, and it, it, you know, it's kind of just like a system, system sustaining process. It's just like this is systematic. Like the, I think the university education is very similar, and I think like their education as a child is very similar. So it's like it's very hard to break that. It's a cultural thing. Yeah, and there's uh, this point about a lot of everybody and their brother going to college to become a teacher because it's well-paid. Something else that I recently learned about that of people becoming teachers is because it's one of the few things that you can study in universities that you can get a lot of scholarships for. So people are studying it not just to eventually earn the high money, but because if they want to study anything at all, it's what they can afford Mm -hmm. to study. So there's that aspect of it too. But it's been, I think, a really interesting time for us as Peace Corps volunteers to be here because Mm -hmm. right... Danilo. Exactly, right when our group arrived, Right, I think so. This country was giving something like 1.7 percent of its GDP towards education programming, public education programming, mm-hmm. and I think is it um, the UN or the World Bank? Somebody like that has set like a global minimal standard that every country should be contributing four percent of their GDP to mm-hmm. education systems. And the current president just changed it recently from whatever the yeah, yeah from like the under the two percent of whatever it was to now the global standard. Mm-hmm. So I think we're also seeing a lot of things happening right now in these schools of, uh, of them just sort of throwing money at places, sort of trying to figure mm-hmm. out where to be investing it and where's the best place to be investing it in the education system. After talking about our experiences with Dominican schools and teachers, I wanted to hear Dave's perspective on our roles as Peace Corps volunteers. In this next segment, we talk about the work we do to help improve the culture of education in the schools and throughout our communities. So at the school, I'm their volunteer. Um, And so I take that word um, pretty seriously because I think there's a problem in, we view ourselves as Peace Corps volunteers as professionals because we are, but when you end up at a school and you arrive and we have a volunteer, well, there's a lot of connotation that comes with that and, you know, meaning. And so I, that's how I chose to view my service in the beginning was like just helping them in things that they needed. Um, I've gained a lot of trust by doing that and so I primarily now have earned the respect enough that um, I work with teachers um, on co-teaching and teaching them uh, pedagogical methods and so things like behavior management, um, how to use positive reinforcement in the classroom and then bringing in literacy activities like small games um, and just pretty much trying to diversify the educational strategies that they use because like I said, it's a lot of stand and deliver right on the chalkboard, children copy it down and very like robotic and, and not stimulating. And so it's about trying to just do very simple, simple things 
to improve that. And none of it is like very like grandiose or, or big, but it's simple things such as using a storybook in the in the classroom and then using that storybook to do a little skit about the story. Or okay, use the uh, chart that has five different smiley faces on it to reinforce their behavior management. So there's a lot of that. And then I also um, personally choose to do tutoring, which is small group tutoring with the first, second, and third graders. Um, and that is I, I identify them through a diagnostic and then the children who are like really far behind in literacy, I do small group tutoring with them. And then more recently, my school director has um, pulled me into helping with the organization of the two centers because we're getting ready to divide the two centers. And so kind of helping in like an administrative capacity as well, like with just giving advice and using my like computer skills to like help type up documents and things like that. But yeah, that's generally my role in the school. It's been really interesting for me to help out in the sort of support role at the school because there are a lot of things that I think that we know and take it take um, for granted from the majority of our background or just being exposed to the education system that we have in the U.S., generally speaking. So this idea of bringing these sort of techniques that seem really simple mm -hmm. uh, into the classroom, like for example, in my case, the kids don't usually learn the alphabet until about fourth grade in my school. And then even when they do, it's so from rote that if you mm -hmm. just point to a random letter, they can't tell you what it is sure. because they only know the full pattern sequence. Um, and so just teaching teachers to mix it up and sort mm -hmm. of randomize things to have them give tests, mm -hmm. which they still don't do, but they never have and they never thought about it, about mm -hmm. actually like investigating Like a real much. test. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so it's been interesting to see just sort of like what types of techniques that we can bring that a lot of times are just things that we just take for granted in our own thought process. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd like to like add on that. I think it's like when, so when I lived in Miami, um, you know, there's a large Latino population and there's a large Dominican population as well. I'm not that large, but there's a Dominican population. So sometimes you'd run into people and you'd ask them, what are you doing next? I'd tell them, oh, I'm going to work in the Dominican Republic in education. They're like, oh, you're going to teach English. And I had a lot of embarrassment. I was like, well, no, I'm actually going to teach Spanish, uh, Spanish literacy. And it's like, my Spanish was not great when I got here. And so it's like, as you get these sideways looks like, well, why you? Like, why are you going to teach Spanish? But I think that what you said is, is like the the things that we provide are just simple things that I think that a lot of us, a lot of us were privileged enough to get in our American education of like, by just being students, we learned what is a great, what, what can be great strategies. Obviously it's important not to equate the two because what worked for me as a straight white male in America in an American suburb is not gonna work necessarily for you who is a straight white female in a you know a different type of community that maybe didn't have the same resources that my community. And it probably won't work for someone who's in the Dominican Republic. But regardless, those things can help inform us in a way that we might not realize when we first come to the country. Can you talk a little bit about your school enrollment project that you have? Oh yeah, for sure. So um, in my town where I work um, as a Peace Corps volunteer is there's a problem of, uh, or there's a situation of Haitian child labor. So a lot of times Haitian children are either sent by their families in Haiti over to the Dominican Republic when the family can't take care of them to live with a Dominican family. And they, in exchange for the Dominicans giving them food and shelter, the children are expected to work in the house, be it in, on the farm if they're a boy or in the kitchen and cleaning if they're girls. Um, the other reality of that practice is that sometimes these children are bought and it's actually human trafficking. 
and they're it's more of a child slavery type of thing. They're treated pretty much similarly. Um, they're given food and shelter, and the Dominican family feels like because they're giving them that, they're entitled to take labor from them. Um, and these children can be anywhere from like three, four, five, up to like 12 or 13, 14. Um, obviously, their children are treated differently. Some are allowed to go to school, some aren't. Um, some are really treated poorly, some are treated like family. But you know, the same thing happened in slavery times. Some were treated nicely and some weren't. It's still, you have to call what it is. It's slavery, uh, or at the very nicest, indentured servitude. Um, so pretty much I encountered this in my community. It's very troubling to watch, obviously. Um, and my immediate reaction was just being upset. Um, but we're not human rights workers as Peace Corps volunteers. I'm an education volunteer. Uh, I'm also not from this culture. It's not my culture. I don't want to come in wagging my finger and, you know, telling everybody what they need to do. This is part of their culture. They've been doing it for a long time. They don't see it as wrong. A lot of the Haitian families don't see it as wrong. So I just started by asking questions about people. After about a year, I started asking questions um, about this practice once I felt more comfortable. And just more like asking, like, you know, what do you think about it? How does it go? Why don't they go to school? Like, and I would ask some of the people who I was comfortable with who had children like this in their households, why aren't they in school? And they'd be like, oh, the school won't accept them. And so that can't be true because the Dominican law is like, you have to accept children without paperwork. So I went to the school and I told them, hey, you know, people are saying that their kid can't come to school because they don't have paperwork. And I used to school, <laughs> no, 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 that's not true. Like, you know, that's like a highly illegal and they'd be in a lot of trouble if someone found this out. So I said, well, you know, people are walking around thinking that or at least saying that. So you guys should do something about it. And so I convinced my school director at the end of the day, long story short, uh, after a lot of convincing and cups of coffee, I convinced my school director to walk house to house with me to these houses that I had identified um, where there's these children and inform them of their rights and inform them that the school would not deny them education. And it's informed them that the process is to go to the local mayor and take out a paper, get a paper signed by him that gives you, put you put your information down and they sign it and that will work as a document in the school. And then we got the mayor to go around and show up with that document. And from that, we really started with four houses that I had identified. As we walked, we discovered 13 houses and from those 13 houses, seven haven't been enrolled in school. Wow. Mm -hmm. And how big is your community, more or less, for context, uh, population-wise? Uh, there's 1,200 okay. people. But as far as the school population, if you uh, seven students in primary is a almost 5% increase in uh, enrollment. And what are the ages and genders of these kids that you got to be enrolled? Primarily male. There's oh. one, so there's one girl who's five. Um, then there's two, three boys who are 11. And there's one boy who's 12, 12 or 13. That's amazing. And then there's a, there's a couple others. And, and we're still in the process. There's another girl who's 13. Uh, and we're in the process of trying to get those last five or six, um, uh, six to come to school. That's really amazing. Mm -hmm. um, out of curiosity with that, in my experience, um, we were talking earlier, you know, a lot of the kids do labor in my town, and I don't really see girls being working in other people's houses, but boys go out to the fields, and it's far. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's like a three-hour walk to get to somebody's finca. Um, so, like, most of those boys who are, let's say, like, 9 to 11, uh, people don't seem to work out in the fincas beyond lunch in my town, but that's we it rains almost literally every day, and it comes, mm -hmm. like, clockwork at about noon, 1 o'clock, you know? So the work is done in the morning. Some of those kids do go to school in the afternoon if 
there's a grade for them, you know, and some just don't. Um, in your experience, these kids who you've enrolled in school, how has that impacted uh, their work that they're supposed to do with the families? So that's a, that's a tricky part um, because obviously, like, you know, at the end of the day, the reality of the situation is the whole, like, the school isn't letting them. It's just a justification. Absolutely. Um, and what they wanted is to work them. So it's a more like a play in the culture on them, like, oh, well, like, this all got fixed out. Like, are you going to send them to school? And they kind of feel shame and they're like, yeah, I guess so. Um, so it's kind of just like keeping that pressure up on them. But one student, one of the re- ones who hasn't come is because the, the guardian, quote unquote, um, is doesn't want him to leave because he needs him to work. Because right now it's a pretty big work season because they're like um, weeding the fields yeah. in between their corn. Um, and so, yeah, that's a problem. And we're worried about when we switch to full day school. Yeah. We're really worried about that. But, you know, it's just a matter of keeping up on people. And, you know, the hope is is that they keep sending them. But at the end of the day, if they don't, like, once again, I'm not a human rights worker. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I this works because it's within the project framework that I have, which is intendance is one of our, our project frameworks. And so um, one of the objectives of our project framework, rather. And so... It works, but you know, if they don't want to, that's like asunto <laughs> suyo. Like, yeah, yeah. it's your problem. Yeah. for several years and it's too one of the reasons I chose to come to the Dominican Republic was to get a broader context for education and specifically to understand what education looks like in a developing nation um, and just in an international context and so obviously like naturally I've been drawing parallels along those lines um, throughout my experience here and I think the biggest takeaway I have as of now and the biggest thing that I would like to communicate to people about it is um, I don't think we should draw the line between America and developing nation, be it Dominican Republic or be it whatever. So I don't think the line should be drawn America, Dominican Republic. And I found in Peace Corps even, a lot of the language we use in training and things drew the line on American schools do this, Dominican schools do this. And I think actually the line should be drawn economically. So higher socioeconomic schools do this, lower socioeconomic schools do this. And I think the, the example is this. I think if you were to take a, a top 25% school in the United States, and if you compare it to a top 25% private school here in the Dominican Republic, I think they're going to produce students who can probably perform at similar levels and probably would have similar resources and probably would be a really similar experience. Um, whereas the school I worked at in Miami is a bottom 25% performing school, and the school I'm working at in the Dominican Republic is... I imagine bottom 25% performing as well, although I don't know the stats. And what I saw is that like, yes, the realities are different because we're talking about an American school which is has a lot more funding and, and just America has a lot more money and resources. But the reality is, is that both students, the student from Miami and the student from the Dominican Republic are gonna come out of that school functionally illiterate. I had most, a lot of my students coming out of Miami functionally illiterate. They could read things to you, but they could not comprehend them. If you put the Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech on for them, which I did, 
they wouldn't understand it. They didn't understand it. And so like, what does that tell you about them as a citizen in society? If you take a Dominican student and you read them the Constitution of the Dominican Republic, they won't understand it most likely. And so what does that tell you about them as citizens here? So the reality is, is that these bottom 25% performing schools, these lower socioeconomic schools, these underserved schools, are producing students that come out in, in a very similar level. Yeah, some can read. Yeah, this one has more computer experience in Miami. Yeah, this one you know, has to walk to school and, and doesn't have as many books and all these things available. But the reality of their lives afterward is that they're going to be easily exploited by, you know, the capitalist system and so that's the real tragedy and that's the thing that i i've seen um coming out of it and so that's just what i would say is, is don't draw the line america developing nation draw the line rich poor Thanks to Dave for this conversation about schools, the culture of education in the Dominican Republic, and what it's like serving as an education Peace Corps volunteer here. Dave's a great colleague and a stellar volunteer. He's been an inspiration to me and to many other volunteers during his service. Thanks for listening to El Cuerpo de Cuentos. You can find more episodes on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts.